We're going to Amsterdam for a very important reason, because we're going to the palace, the royal palace, because we have an appointment to meet with the king. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you wish you had dressed differently for your meeting with the king? Maybe. Maybe not. You know, it's, it's Holland, so the king's pretty casual. He's a down-to-earth sort of guy, from what I'm told. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, probably be okay. Even with the way I'm dressed. I'm a little worried, though. I would sort of wish I'd comb my hair. And, uh, yeah, well, anyway... One thing is for sure, though, when we get to the palace, something is going to happen before we meet with the king. This is a pretty good crowd of people, so it's going to take a while for us to meet the king. And when we get there, I'm sure someone, some representative of the king is going to come and meet with us first. And he's going to tell us, or she, is going to tell us exactly how you go about meeting the king. Because you don't meet the king just like you meet anybody. Now, I could have said we're going to meet the president of the United States. The same thing would happen. You would arrive at the White House or the palace or whatever, and someone would come and he'd tell you exactly how to, you know, bow your head or curtsy or shake hands or not shake hands. <laughs> or whatever you needed to know, how exactly you are to address the king. I don't know how to address the king of Holland. I think if I were meeting the queen of England, I'm required to address her a very specific way, your royal highness or your majesty, that's it. Because your royal highness is for only for princes and princesses or dukes or somebody like that. The queen is your majesty. In the United States, Mr. President, I don't call him Joe. Well, I do call him Joe, but not if I'm meeting him. Well, here we are. We're already in the palace. We have gathered here this morning to meet the king the King of kings, the Lord God Almighty, to worship the Lord. Worship. That's a, You know, when you meet the king, you're supposed to do some worship, some bowing, some formal addressing. But I'm pretty sure none of us thought twice this morning about what we needed to do to prepare ourselves to meet the king we are meeting, who is far superior to any earthly king. Should we have? You know, for a long, long time, in some places even now, 
People expect you to dress up to go to church for this very reason. Should we have an expectation like that in our church? We don't, but maybe we should. Relax, I'm not going to end up there. (laughs) We read a passage from the book of Leviticus this morning. You know, we almost never select our Sunday morning scripture reading from the book of Leviticus. But what's going on in that text that we read is preparation to meet the object that represents the king. And did you notice in the middle of that text we read that it said, so that he will not die? (laughs) Whoa! Was anyone worried about how you were doing to come to church this morning so that you wouldn't die when you got here? No, but then when we all went to church, one guy, the top guy, took, did you notice, seven times, two sacrifices at least, depends on how we count them. And of course, we only read one little six-verse passage out of the whole book of Leviticus, which is all about What must you do if you expect to worship God and not die? Well, this is partly what the book of Hebrews is about, that old system. Obviously, we're not operating that way anymore. And we've uh, been looking in Hebrews chapter 9 about the worship service of the tabernacle. That's what's getting spelled out in the book of Leviticus. And uh, a couple weeks ago, well, three weeks ago actually, since we've been in the book of Hebrews, but we've been looking at chapter 9. I just want to read this section to you. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship. That's what we're talking about. And an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant. That's the throne of God, the, well, it's the material representation of the throne of God uh, in a tent on the earth. This is the holy of ho- the holiest place. Well, okay. So the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides of gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
the prep, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he only once a year, but not without taking blood. That's what we read about. He doesn't go in there with no blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So this is now review, because we've talked about this already, but I have uh, notes in your bulletin, a review of what the Spirit is, has revealed about worship in the old tabernacle. The worship of the old tabernacle required daily, daily sacrifices and once a year sacrifices. The worship of the old tabernacle didn't actually allow access to God. You and me, we stand outside while the priest goes in. Uh, this, the, the worship of the old tabernacle did not perfect the conscience. That is quite an expression. And I'm going to try to summarize it by saying it did not actually solve the sin problem. Those sacrifices didn't purify you. They made you ritually clean. We'll, we'll talk some more about that. Uh, the, sac the worship in the old tabernacle was a matter of external regulation imposed on. It was, it was legal. It was law. Lots and lots of stipulations. Here's how you prepare. If this happens, then you need to do this to be suitable for worship. We have a tendency to think today that there's nothing to be done to make anyone suitable for worship. That anyone might just come to God at any time for any reason. Well, that certainly was not the case in ancient Israel. And the last thing the Spirit reveals about this old tabernacle worship was that it was only a symbol of the real thing another thing, a heavenly tabernacle. So that's where we left off, and now we come to this verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal 
redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? You remember that's the thing that the worship service of the tabernacle couldn't do. Christ's sacrifice does do, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, where I want you to notice is where we end up. Serve the living God. The word serve there, it means like service, like we have a church service. It means worship. It's the religious serve word. It doesn't mean serve like serve tables or set up chairs or all the deacon service we do in the church. It's a different word. It's the word that they used for the temple service, what priests do. And so we have had our consciences purified from dead works to Worship the living God. So this whole thing is about how a person becomes suitable for worship. Okay, so that's where we're headed. So we read this, Christ entered the holy place once for all. That's different. Because, you know, in the old system, the priests entered the holy place day after day after day after day, and the holiest place once a year, and again next year, and again next year, and again next year, and again, and again, and again. There's no once-for-all sacrifice. And we, are, we read here that Christ, when he appeared as high priest, he appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. He appears as the high priest of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the promises of Messiah, the messianic kingdom, the, the outpouring of the Spirit of God into the hearts of his people, the writing of the law on our hearts, He's the high priest of those good things, the things promised and not provided in the old covenant, but only provided in the new covenant. And when he appeared, he entered through the real tabernacle, not the representational tabernacle. The, the tabernacle of Israel was a, a symbol, a representation of the temple in heaven, the actual dwelling place of God. So Jesus comes through the real tabernacle. It's called here greater and more perfect. The tent not made with hands, not of this creation. And later in, the, in verse 24, we, we read its actual location in heaven. 
So we're talking about not the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the, the material representation of the throne of God, but the actual throne of God the Father is where Jesus appeared with his sacrifice. Oh, and it's not the same sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice of animals, goats and calves, but his own blood. So in every respect, this is a superior service, priestly service. And the consequence of that is, it says here, so securing eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Now, what was secured in the old tabernacle? Temporary atonement. Covering. And it's not clear, at least in the text we read today, whether you're covering the whether you're covering God with the blood or covering us. But either way, there's a sacrifice, a substitution. Now, this phrase, securing eternal redemption, it's I, I have to give you a little bit of a grammar lesson now. Uh, it's in what we call the middle voice. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, the verbs have three voices. They have active voice, they have passive voice, and they have middle voice. An active voice is, I throw the ball. That's the subject of the verb is acting. I'm throwing the ball. Passive voice is, the ball was thrown. Now the subject of the sentence is the thing acted on, passive. Middle is he did it himself. We would use in English, we'd use the expression himself, herself, themselves to express some of this middle voice thing. So it's like he's saying this, so he himself secured eternal redemption. He did it himself. In the old system, the sacrifice did not offer itself. In the new system, the sacrifice offers himself. He uh, sees to it personally. God Almighty, the eternal Son, doesn't leave this to other priests. When it comes to securing eternal redemption, he does it himself. It reminds me of that parable, you know, where the, the king sends his agents to collect some taxes or something. I don't remember what it was. He sends some agents, and the people that owe the rent or the tax or whatever it is, they kill the agent. So he sends another one a more important one, and they kill him too. And he sends another one, a more important one, and they kill him too. 
Finally, he does it himself. He sends his son. Turns out they kill him too. Oh, well, that's what happened. In this case, all of that is an illustration of the prophets, the prophets, the prophets, the prophets, the son. And in this instance, the son secures eternal redemption. He doesn't leave this to some other agency. He takes care of it himself personally. He secured our eternal redemption by entering before the very throne of God in heaven with his own blood given as a sacrifice on our behalf. So this is no temporary covering. This doesn't wear out, and you got to do it again next year. This is eternal redemption. that he applies to his people. He does it himself. Oh, also, you don't give your own sacrifice. He gave it, and he has secured something for you. Redemption is a good word, too. (laughs) It means it's what you would do to buy someone out of a slavery or prison. It means release. It means liberation. In other words, you were trapped, held captive, not free, but his, his path through the holy place, the real one, before God Almighty in heaven, presenting him his own blood as a sacrifice for you, has secured release for you from your captivity and not just release that you know might get revoked next week eternal redemption the sacrifices in the old system were the model for the actual real sacrifice that actually accomplishes our redemption. Cleansing our conscience. So he concludes this little section with this expression. So if the blood of bulls and goats sanctifies for the purification of the body, How much more the blood of Christ, the eternal Son made man? How much more his blood? Well, we should think about what what does this mean if the blood of bulls and goats sanctify for the purification of the body? Well, it's a restatement of most of what we've said already. To sanctify in this instance is to set someone apart for worship. To qualify a person as a worshiper. You you have to bring a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is the blood of an animal. So all of this sets you apart. You provide the sacrifice. That's 
the animal dying and you not dying. And so there's a provision of an outward ritual purity, the cleansing of the body, the purification of the body, the, the material you. It's a material representation of atonement or covering of sin through a sacrificial substitute. I should say that again because that was long and complex. It provides an outward ritual purity, a material representation of atonement or covering of sin through sacrificial substitution. Then, what about the sacrifice, the once and for all entry of the Lord Jesus? It says, how much more the blood of Christ who offered himself through the eternal spirit. If you ask the question, what God Jesus passed the garden of Gethsemane, it's the ministry of the very Holy Spirit of God to strengthen him and give him faith to endure the cross for the joy set before him. He trusts absolutely in the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without blemish. That's kind of important. You know, those animals that you gave as a sacrifice, they had to be perfect. There couldn't be anything visibly wrong with them. Well, here's the thing about every last one of those animals. If they didn't become a sacrifice, they were going to die some other way. There's no such thing really as an absolutely blameless lamb. But they had to appear. They had to be no visible problems. You see, they're representations of the one who is actually blameless, without blemish. And the Lord Jesus, the human being, by walking in faith in the Father, by the power of the Spirit, that Lord Jesus, the man, lived in perfect righteousness from the day he was born till the day he ascended into heaven having risen from the dead. Not one slightest unholiness, not the tiniest infraction of the righteousness of God. We can't even imagine it. And yet, that's the sacrifice he offered, the sacrifice of his own body, on the cross, apart from even the hint of sin. And he offered himself through the Spirit, without blemish, to the Father, not to the ark. You hear the difference? His sacrifice is offered right to God the Father, the the Son of God before the Father of God. 
It's not symbolic. It's the real deal. So he says, what's the effect of this sacrifice? How much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience. The very thing the sacrifices of the old system could not do, weren't designed to do. These sacrifices do purify your conscience. Your conscience. That's your, your sense of sin. Your moral compass, we sometimes call it. How can your conscience be clean? This is, this is hard to figure because the Bible makes crystal clear, and we all know it anyway, nobody's perfect. All of us have done wrong. All of us have done wrong on purpose for the fun of doing wrong. How do we get a clean conscience? The sacrifice of Christ. Because here's what happens in the great substitution. In the great substitution, the, the death of Christ for the death of us. In the great substitution, the death of Christ, God Almighty credits you with his righteousness. The life that he lived from birth to ascension with not one single slightest tiny infraction of the law of God, he gives you credit for that life in this great substitution. <laughs> and so you are so righteous in the eyes of God that you could call your conscience clean. The scripture says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not there's only a little, or not you get somewhat forgiven, you are totally cleansed. It's hard to believe, I know. You get the credit for his own righteousness. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, oh man, the only thing I want is to know Christ. To experience his righteousness, not a righteousness of my own but the righteousness that comes from God through Christ by faith. This is what Titus 3.5 is talking about when it says we're saved, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. <laughs> On the basis of the cross of Christ. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about when it says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is what the very next phrase in, the, in our text is talking about. 
when it says, this blood of Christ will purify your conscience from dead works. You know what that's talking about. It's talking about your goodness. Your dead works. Your goodnesses. I had a pastor for a long time. He liked to say this. You know what you really need to repent of is your goodness. Your own righteousness. Which the Bible describes as filthy rags before the holy God. And so your conscience is cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ, not by your effort, not by your good deeds, not as a result of self-righteousness, but his credited to you for free. You know, all this that we've read, I haven't heard a single thing for me to do. Well, till now. (laughs) How much more the blood of Christ who offered himself through the eternal spirit without blemish to God the Father will purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. You see, all of this is how the Lord himself makes me suitable to stand in the presence of the Lord himself and to praise him and to worship him and to not die. Because a sinner like me should not stand in the presence of perfect righteousness. But because of the substitution of Christ, I have the credit of his righteousness and I have the invitation to draw near to God. And so we can come on in here to the house of God like we own the place. We can come in here, we don't, uh, we can dress, we can even dress kind of shabby and it's no, no big deal. How we dress, in fact, how we dress is really the least of our concerns. But if you read in the Old Testament, what those guys, they had, to, they had to dress in the dress that was for this and for this only. They had to have Sunday clothes. Well, I don't know if it was Sunday. But they had to have the clothes for the day, and they couldn't wear those clothes any other day. Those were only for this. We come freely. The scripture actually says, whosoever will may come. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I never turn anyone down. If we come to God in Christ, we can march in there and call him daddy. It's kind of disrespectful, really, when you think about who he is. And yet, he responds to us as gentle, loving, 
providing, protecting Father because of the sacrifice of Christ. Because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ and not my own dead works. So, imagine the trip. When I get up on Sunday morning to go go to church, of course, any morning I can get up and go before God. I can draw near to God at any time in any place. The Scripture says, pray without ceasing. What? You have the right to pray. That's astounding. That's ridiculous. You should not have the right to pray, but because of the sacrifice of Christ, you can pray whenever you want about anything you want, no matter how dumb it is. And the Bible actually tells you that all your prayers are stupid. You don't, Paul the Apostle says, we don't know how to pray as we should. And yet, I can come any time with my foolish, childish prayers, and I can lay my life before God, and I can rest in the finished work of Christ and know that that God Almighty, the judge of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, will receive me with open arms because I'm with him the one seated there at the right hand. You know, this is something you should never get over. This should never become, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. It is crazy good what God has done in Christ for us, his people. And we have also the very living Spirit of God dwelling in each of us and in us, among us, that makes all of these things real. The real tabernacle was absolutely essential. And of course, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's telling us about the real tabernacle because he's dealing with a bunch of Hebrew Christians who are worried about what it might cost them to be associated with Christ. And so they're thinking of returning to a religious system that doesn't include Christ. Crazy. And the whole book of Hebrews is written to just point out how utterly insane that would be. Because if we have any idea how well God has done by us in Christ... We can never abandon it. We, all, we will draw near. We will hold fast to the confession of our faith. And that is what we are called to do. We are called in this passage, having our consciences purified to worship the living God. And in the New Testament, worship is, a, is, a, is simple. It's trust yourself to God, make yourself available to God. That's all. Living sacrifice. Present yourself to him. Is your spiritual service of worship. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with great thanksgiving, Lord. We can't say it well 
our gratitude for this redemption, this eternal redemption you've just given to us. So, Lord, we present ourselves. We imitate Christ in his presentation of himself. We trust ourselves entirely to you. And we want to live in a way that gives your name praise, that exhibits this amazing grace that you have granted to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.